in this commanding moment of complete authority, the governor, Pontius Pilate, handed down the sentence to Jesus. It was simply the diminishing of the majesty of the Roman people. In short, they called it maestas. It was this far-reaching law that covered everything from libel and slander all the way up to the more serious treason and sedition. And for the history of this law, the punishment was to exile the individual outside of the Roman kingdom and confiscate all their personal property. But something interesting happened in 21 AD. Underneath the authority and rule of Tiberius, he elevated the punishment to death. And so in this moment, just a few years later, Pilate sentenced Jesus to death. He was flogged. A beam was laid across his shoulders and he was crucified And in this moment, all those that were closest to Jesus disassociated themselves from him, claiming to never have met him or to know him or to ever have connected with him. All those that were closest with Jesus who walked with him from city to city to city, now they vanished, not to be seen. Those that were closest to Jesus, that were the most outspoken, elevating his name, now were silenced. Those that were closest to Jesus, who just hours before fiercely fought for him, now were minimized. For all those who claimed that Jesus was the one and true Messiah, now they questioned They questioned everything that they had abandoned, everything that they had left behind, everything that they had given up to follow Jesus. Was it worth it? What for? All those that claimed that Jesus was the Messiah, now they doubted. Was he really the promised one, the Messiah, the one that the prophets had talked about, the one that we have been waiting for? Or did we get it wrong? All those that claimed that Jesus was the Messiah, they now feared because if not just Rome, if the Jewish leaders could do that to Jesus, oh, what about themselves? And all those who claimed that Jesus was the Messiah, now now they wondered. Now they wondered. Because you see, they had looked at Jesus in the eyes and he was different. They had heard him talk and teach and it was different. They had spent time around Jesus and there was just something about him that was different. But yet they stood there in this moment and they saw Jesus crucified. For us, we observe We observe Good Friday as a moment where we remember and reflect what Jesus did on the cross. And then Easter Sunday is a time for us to celebrate that he conquered the grave, that he is risen. 
And you see, the resurrection is the one thing that separates out Jesus from all other people across the course of time. You see, Jesus was a great teacher, but there's been many great teachers uh, uh, along the course of time. Jesus was a great philosopher, but there's been great philosophers over the course of time. Jesus cared for the least of these, the orphans and the poor and the widows, but there's been other people that have cared for the least of these, the poor and the widows. Jesus healed people, but other people have healed people. You see, it is the resurrection that not only separates Jesus out, but Christianity out from all other belief systems. It is the resurrection. And for Jesus to rise must mean that he was completely dead. And you see, in this in-between moment, between Good Friday and Easter, all these people were left wondering. Because you see, we know the end of the story, but they didn't have a clue what was going to come in just days And so they found themselves in this moment of in-between. Jesus is dead. And they find themselves in this incredible moment of uncertainty. And in this moment of uncertainty, something heroic is going to take place. In this in-between moment, between Good Friday and Easter, two men emerge from the shadows of hesitation, and they put forward into motion a set of critical events that's going to shine the light on the resurrection. You see, in this moment of in-between, these two men took a step of mesmerizing faith which would verify Jesus' death and in return legitimize his resurrection. And John captures this moment as she shines a light on this in-between moment and gives us this picture into these two men. John chapter 19, he accounts later, and that's a critical word because we know that, that the time was somewhere between three and Six o'clock. And between three and six o'clock, these men realized that Jesus was dead. And in this moment, they decided that they had to do something. And they had to do something about it. And so they said, well, we got to take care of his body before the Sabbath started at 6 p.m. And John tells us that Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. Now, that's critical. It's critical. Remember these words, secretly and feared. He goes on. He goes, with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. You see, what we know about uh, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea is they were both Pharisees. They were the kind of religious elite. If you wanted to simplify their job description, it was simply to be as good as possible. And they were really good at being good. They had all of the 630-some laws memorized. They had the entire Bible memorized. They were experts with teaching the Bible. 
But not only were these men Pharisees, they sat on the ruling Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. You see, in the Jewish culture, church and state wasn't separated. They were interconnected. Government, government and religion were the same. And Rome had said to the Jewish people, hey, you can govern yourselves as long as you pay taxes to Caesar and you choose to not go against anything that Rome tells you to do. We'll leave you alone. And so Joseph and Nicodemus sat on this leadership council and they had power and they had influence. But yet they feared. John gives us kind of this sneak peek into the emotional landscape of what's going on in the culture at that time. In John 12, he talks about that many people, many leaders, believed in Jesus being the Messiah. But they feared the Pharisees because if the Pharisees would have found out, they would have excommunicated them from the church. But then John adds this thought onto this emotional landscape that they were experiencing. He adds this thought. He says that, that, that they loved the praise of man more than they loved the praise of God. Think about that. I mean, some 2,000 years later, I'm sure I'm not the only one in this room that seems to default to uh, other people's praise and other people's recognition and other people's approval more than I seek God's praise and recognition and approval. And you see Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, man, they were fearful. Because they had everything to lose. But yet something within their spiritual journey knew that they had everything to gain. We find in John chapter 3 that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. I mean, John alludes to this when he talks about him coming in secret. And in this secret conversation Nicodemus has with Jesus, Jesus starts talking about this entire concept of being born again, rebirth, a second birth. And Nicodemus was trying to phrase it, frame it in this human context, but yet Jesus was talking about something very spiritual and something to come. And so we get this sense that they were working through their spiritual journey. They were working through it. And you see, there's going to be three critical steps that's going to take place. Critical steps that's going to verify Jesus' death and in return legitimize his resurrection. You see, the first critical step that Joseph and, Joseph and Nicodemus does is this. They went, go back one. They went to Pilate for permission for Jesus' body. You see, it was customary, kind of in that Roman uh, culture and time, that the Roman government, when they crucified someone, they didn't want those people to have an honorable death, an honorable burial. So what they would do is they would take the bodies off the cross, they would put it into some type of wagon or cart, and they would dump them into a mass grave or a large garbage dump. 
And that's where the bodies were laid because they didn't want to honor the criminals. But if you had enough money, you could go find that guy whose job it was to collect bodies and dump them. Oh, that poor soul. And you could bribe them and you could get a body. But something happened differently here. Because you see, when Joseph went to Pilate, it became a public declaration that he was associating himself with Jesus and disassociating himself with being a Pharisee sitting on the Sanhedrin. You see, Joseph could have gone in the, in the secrecy of night, found that guy, bribed that guy, and got his body. But if that would have happened, think about this, just a few days later, if it would have been done in secrecy, when Jesus would come back alive, guess what everyone would have talked about? Ah, oh, I guess he really wasn't dead. I guess when they took him off the cross, he, I mean, he was in bad condition, but he wasn't dead. And those radical disciples went to the garbage dump and found his body and got his body and was able to somehow nurse him back to health. You see, the, mo- the first most critical step that we're going to see in this in-between time is Joseph of Arimathea made this public declaration that he was claiming Jesus' body and it sent shockwaves across that community. We go into the second step. It says, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, taking Jesus' body. The two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. And you think about this. The experts think that not only was it 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, but another 25 pounds of linen. So over 100 pounds they placed on Jesus' body. And from head to toe, they wrapped his entire body. And even if, in the smallest chance, that Jesus might have been alive at that point, guess what this verified? He was dead. No one could have survived being wrapped and his entire body engulfed in all of these myrrhs and aloes. He would have suffocated to death. You see, in this act of worship, this act of respect, what they didn't realize, but what they did was to verify his death. And then John tells us that they did this. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. He goes on. He says, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. We, we find out that, that Jesus, or that Joseph of Arimathea, was, uh, uh, that was his tomb. It was his own personal tomb. And they took that body with a hundred pounds of linens and aloes and myrrh and placed that body into that rock cave tomb. And they rolled a stone in front of it, locking him in place. You see, we got to remember that in the in-between time, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they didn't know what was going to happen next. 
All they knew is something within their spirit, something within them motivate, motivated them to disassociate their entire life away from everything they knew and associate themselves with Jesus. And in that mesmerizing step of faith, they made a public declaration that they had Jesus' body, and there's no secret about it. And in that mesmerizing step of faith, they verified that Jesus was dead. And in that mesmerizing step of faith, they locked his body into the tomb. You see, what they couldn't have fathomed, what they had no concept of, concept of was that the end was just the beginning. The sun was about ready to rise. And this group of ladies made their way back to the tomb, carrying spices and aloes and myrrh. There's these moments in the Bible that uh, if you pause long enough and kind of start reading between the lines, you kind of get this uh, interesting picture of what might have been taking place, what some of the back conversations would have been like. You see, the same group of ladies were the same ladies that were there while uh, Joseph and Nicodemus were wrapping and and getting Jesus' body ready. And you think about that thought. Two men wrapping and getting Jesus' body ready And then all of a sudden, these same ladies who were witnessing them do this decide to come back. Obviously, they realize that two men could never have done a good job with it, right? I mean, you think about this moment. They're like, oh, yeah, we left early, and we saw what they're doing, and we got to do something better than that. And so they were coming back to do it right. And so they were headed back to the, 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 the tomb, and you could just hear their conversation going, man, yeah, these guys, well, I don't even know what they were thinking. Why, why did they think they could do a good job? And it's going to be a mess because we're going to have to redo what they did. And so they're talking, and they approach the tomb, and it's empty. They had no comprehension. They had no idea that it was going to be empty. They were just coming back to fix what two guys had obviously messed up. You know, what's interesting is no one was there. No one was there anticipating Christ's resurrection. Peter, Cephas, Rock, the one that Jesus looked at and said, Upon you I will build my church. He wasn't there. John, the beloved He wasn't there, and Mary, Jesus' own mom, she wasn't there, waiting, anticipating his resurrection. No one was. And the word spread as people saw Jesus and talked with Jesus and interacted with Jesus and touched Jesus, and the word spread. And I think about Nicodemus, Nicodemus, the guy that came to Jesus in the cover of night in secret because he feared what might happen to his position. And he came to Jesus to start this dialogue 
Because there was something different about Jesus. There was something that connected Nicodemus with Jesus. There was something that intrigued Nicodemus with Jesus. And I wonder when, when Nicodemus heard the news, when people said, no, I've seen Jesus. I've talked with Jesus. He's alive. I wonder if Nicodemus started to play back in his mind this conversation that he had with Jesus in the secrecy of night. I wonder if that whole conversation about being born again, a second birth, all started to become clearer in Nicodemus' mind. And I wonder if Nicodemus, in one moment, as he's thinking back through this entire conversation, if he kind of, like, kind of hit his head a little bit and said, Nicodemus, you're an idiot. You looked at Jesus, the Messiah, and talked about coming back into my mother's womb. That's awkward. And then I wonder if Nicodemus started thinking about this moment when Jesus looked at Nicodemus in this conversation in the secrecy of night. And Jesus looked at Nicodemus and said, hey, Nicodemus, do you remember this moment in the Old Testament? And I'm sure Nicodemus just fired back. Of course, Jesus, I know the moment in the Old Testament because I have the entire thing memorized. And Jesus was like, do you remember specifically this moment with snakes and Moses? And, and Nicodemus was like, yes, Jesus, remember, I have the entire thing memorized. I know the story. And I'm sure Jesus was like, okay, but I'm going to tell you the story anyway. And Jesus recounts a story about the Israelites. And they had went against God. They had sinned against God. And God was furious. So God sent venomous snakes. And these venomous snakes started to bite the Israelites. And they started to die. And after some time, the Israelites were like, we're tired of dying. This is bad. So they go to Moses. They're like, Moses, man, you got to do something. you got to talk to God. It's getting really bad out here. So Moses goes to God and says, Hey, God, you know those snakes you sent? Could you do something about them? The people are really sorry. They're sorry for sinning against you. They really are repentant. And instead of God saying, Okay, I'm going to remove the snakes. You know what God said? He looked at Moses and said, Hey, Moses, I want you to fashion a bronze snake I want you to put it on a pole. And every time someone gets bit, if they look look at that snake on that pole, they will live. Now think about that story. I mean, I'm talking a thousand years or more that this story had lived in this Jewish culture. And people were like, why didn't God just get rid of the snake? That had been a lot easier than bronze snake on a pole and people still getting bit and they have to look at it like that's complicated get rid of the snakes i'm sure nicodemus at some point because he knew this story he had taught on the story always wondered what was the real point of this and then jesus said these words just as moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes not behaves not gets it right all the time, not has the entire Bible memorized, not the person who goes to church the most or prays the most or says the right things all the time, but whoever believes may have eternal life. And I think Nicodemus replayed this entire conversation back in his mind, and he goes, I get it now. I get it. 
I get it. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he kind of brings his all together in this very succinct way. He wrote these words. For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. And that phrase literally means the most critical, nothing else matters. Hold on to what I'm going to tell you right now. That Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He goes on. And that he appeared. And, and grasp what he's going to do next. Because remember, what separates out Jesus from everyone else and Christianity away from all other belief systems isn't Christ's death. It's his resurrection. And Paul's saying, hey, Jesus came, and he walked, and he talked, and he died, but he rose, and he goes, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Paul's saying, hey, no, 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 this isn't a rumor, this isn't some myth, this isn't some fable. Jesus appeared to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. He was fully dead. That was verified thanks to Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And now he's fully alive. And hundreds of people have witnessed him alive. And he goes on. He goes, guess what? Most of whom are still living. If you have questions, if you have doubts, if you're not sure, there's First-hand accounts of people still alive who witnessed Jesus alive. He goes on, he says, Though some have fallen asleep, meaning some had died. Then he appeared to James, Jesus' half-brother. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Jesus is alive. And you see, I think about these two men, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, that in a heroic step of faith, in the in-between, after Christ's crucifixion, but before they realized the real end of the story. They took a step out and did something to pave the way for us today. See, here's what I know in this room today. As we look at Joseph and Nicodemus' life and their spiritual journey and all these points along the way, all of you are somewhere along kind of that timeline. Maybe you find yourself like Nicodemus. You're kind of having secret conversations with Jesus because you're still not sure about Jesus. You're, not, you're still not sure about his story. You're still not sure that he conquered the grave. You're still not sure. And I just want you to know, you're on the journey. That's the beginning. 
And God is faithful and he will continue to walk with you even through your doubts and even through your questions and even through your uncertainty. For some of you, you find yourself spiritually at a place where where the approval of man is more important than the approval of God. What other people think about you and what you believe is more important than what God has for you. And it's a tension in your faith right now. You want to share, you want to tell people, but you're not sure how they will, how they will respond and how they will act and what they will think about you. And you frame it in a way where you're like, well, uh, uh, my faith is, is private. No, it's not private. It was never meant to be private. Jesus' death wasn't private. For some of you, you find yourself right in that moment, like Joseph and, and Nicodemus, where you're face to face with Jesus, and there's something within you, and maybe you can't articulate it, but there's something within you, pushing you, driving you, moving you to associate yourself with Jesus. And I would just say to you, remember, it's for those who believe. Not that you have it all put together, not that you have all the answers, not that you, your behavior reflects everything that you think it should reflect. It's just for those who believe. All you need to do is believe. And for some of you, today is just a moment to celebrate your Savior that's living out in you and out of you. It's already there. And it's your moment to worship a risen Savior. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Lord, I know in this moment right now, Everyone's at a different place as they're trying to just figure this thing out. And Lord, I just pray that everyone in this room will know how desperately you love them, how desperately you care for them. And what you did on that cross for all people, for all time. Lord, for two men, Nicodemus and Josephus, Joseph, that... uh, that took such a bold step of faith to verify your son's death and return legitimize his resurrection. So on this Easter Sunday, we celebrate you as our risen Lord. In your name I pray. Well, here at Renaissance, you know, we kind of like to do church uh, a little differently than other churches, and uh, we do like to have fun because there's so much to celebrate uh, especially this Easter, uh, Easter Sunday. And if you're a guest with us today, I just want to say thank you for coming and checking things out here. And I get what it feels like to uh, uh, come to any new place for the very first time, let alone church, and a church that's on the third floor. It's just one of those things. And uh, 
But thanks for coming and checking things out And uh, after service today. And we have a few more things to do, so don't go yet. But uh, after service today, I just invite you to go back through those double doors and hang a right into our cafe. And we have an incredible team of people at our guest center. They just want to connect with you and then answer any questions you might have about Renaissance Church and why we're here and why we exist and get to know you a little bit. Uh, so please stop by there as you leave here today. You see, one of the kind of foundations of Renaissance Church is we just really value doing this thing called life together. I mean, all of us, uh, to be very transparent, I'm, I'm no different than you. I got questions, I got doubts, I have moments in my faith with incredible tension. And you see, what I love about Renaissance Church is, is just a bunch of individuals all coming together trying to figure this out together. A bunch of people coming together and helping each other out. If someone has a question, someone coming beside them helping to answer those questions. If someone has doubts, someone coming beside them and helping them work through their, through their doubts. When someone's having just a dark moment of life, people rallying around that person, helping them through that moment of life. And you see, I think about Nicodemus uh, and Joseph. You know, as they stood there together, witnessing Jesus' crucifixion, I think to myself, what if they wouldn't have been together? What if they had just been individuals standing there by themselves having these thoughts? I wonder if they just thought to themselves, if they stood there by themselves going, man, I, I, I got to do something, I got to do something. How easy it would have been for them just to dismiss that thought, but somehow they were together. Somehow they were connected. And I think in that conversation, one of them just leaned over to the other person saying, we got to do some, something. And that other person said, yeah, we got to do something, what? And they started having this conversation. And uh, along the way, this conversation, they're like, we got to get his body. Well, you know what that means. Yeah, I know what that means. And all of a sudden, someone's like, how should we get the body? And I wonder if they said, well, we could pay that guy off. You know, that guy who has that horrible job getting bodies and dumping them? That's horrible. We could go pay him off. And someone said, yeah, but that's in secret. We got to make a stance. And then one of them said, well, we got to go to Pilate. Yeah, we got to go to Pilate. You do that. No, not me. You do that. Now let's flip a coin, right? So they flipped a coin and drew straws or something. And uh, Joseph was like, ah, I lost. And Nicodemus was like, yes, I'm going shopping for aloes and myrrh. But they did it together. It was them together. And you see, the purpose of the church, not my purpose for the church, God's purpose for the church is about people doing life together. Imperfect people committed to doing this thing together. It's a heartbeat of Renaissance Church. And so I'd love to invite all of you to come back. Next weekend, we start a new series, and all a series is, is simply we talk about a subject matter until we run out of things to talk about. And so uh, we're launching this new series called It's Complicated. And you know, if you uh, have a spouse or you're dating someone or you have kids or you have a mother-in-law or a father-in-law or, or you have a boss or employees or a coach or someone, if you have a friend at all, you know how complicated relationships truly are. And what's great is the Bible is an incredible tool, an incredible resource, and it speaks so much about relationships because God gets how complicated we are as human beings. And so we're going to spend uh, uh, several weeks trying to uncomplicate our very complicated relationships. So please come back for that.
well, how we wanted to end this Easter service. We wanted to end just celebrating our risen Lord. Celebrating the fact that he's alive. So right now, I invite you to stand with us as we worship our risen Lord. Our prayer for all of you this Easter morning is simply this. That no matter what you're navigating in life, no matter what uh, you're dealing with right now, for you to hold on to the fact that our God is able. That God will never fail you. That God will never abandon you. That God, the God who conquered the grave and is alive, will always be with you. So as you leave here today, please hold on to that truth that God is able. God bless and happy Easter.